Good afternoon and welcome to the 165th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of musicians and how they're coping with the pandemic. I'll be talking with Rafe Offer. And then a public health update with frequent COVID Calls guest, Esther Chernak. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 9th, 2020, there are 1,259,976 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 10,218,278 cases in the United States. That's up from 9,678,326 reported on Friday. There are now a total of 237,742 deaths in COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 235,541 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Joseph Souza III, 81, was a singer, career railroader, and loving family man. This was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer on October 28th by Gary Miles. It isn't the two-week visits to family in Connecticut or the trips to Long Island to see their uncle that the Souza boys, Kevin, Michael, and Peter, remember most about their childhood vacations. It's their father belting out Barry Manilow hits to his own unique lyrics during the five-hour car rides. He was a booming tenor singing opera at full throat whenever he was in the car, the family said in a tribute. He had the incredible ability to convolute and improv with fiery confidence. The lyrics of 70s pop tunes, Barry Manilow's Looks Like We Made It, became Looks Like Tomatoes. He was just a presence wherever he was, Michael Souza said. Joseph Souza III died on Tuesday, October 20th at Brightview, Devon of COVID-19. A resident of Rosemont within a stone's throw of Villanova University South Campus for 44 years, Mr. Souza was a longtime executive and consultant for Amtrak. With his wife of 51 years, Terry, Mr. Souza raised their sons and rose through the Amtrak ranks until becoming the executive director of purchasing for the East Coast. Mr. Souza retired from Amtrak in 2006, but returned as a consultant in 2009, a member of the New York Railroad Club. For 35 years, he served for a time as its president and was known around the Amtrak office for his style, integrity, ethics, quick wit, and memory. I will always remember him in his Joseph A. Banks suits, Brooks Brothers shirts, shiny Melton shoes with briefcase in hand, bouncing on his toes, one colleague wrote. Born on August 5, 1939, Mr. Souza was one of four children and grew up in the fishing village of Stonington, Connecticut. His backyard was the Atlantic Ocean, so his childhood was filled with swimming, sailing, and fishing. 
He met Terry Martini on a blind date, 1964, told her then they would marry, and they did, five years later. They completed each other in ways that only they could understand, the family wrote. Mr. Souza loved to dance on family vacations, steam lobsters, and watch Villanova basketball. He served in the Army National Guard, attended Connecticut College, and worked early on at General Dynamics Electric Boat in New London, Connecticut. A devout Catholic, he was an affiliate of the Augustinian Order and a longtime lector at St. Thomas of Villanova. His favorite activity was coaching his sons in soccer and Little League, baseball, attending their football, basketball, swimming, and baseball events when they were older, and even later doting on his three grandchildren. He always suited up and showed up, Michael Souza said. You don't realize until you're older all the things your parents do for you. That's how it was with us. It's very touching. Mr. Souza is survived by his wife, three sons, and three grandchildren. His brother and two sisters died earlier. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. Really happy to introduce my guest. Rafe Offer has held senior positions with some of the world's largest companies, including serving as marketing director for Disney. Rafe continues to consult top companies, including Microsoft, Aviva, the Daily Mail Group, and Amazon. He is the CEO and co-founder of So Far Sounds, a cutting-edge music company and worldwide promoter of new bands. It's grown from one London living room into a global music phenomenon, which has created the world's largest international network of live music events and has been touted by The Guardian as a quiet revolution and by New York Magazine as one of the top new brands in America. Rafe, thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me. And, and you, uh, sorry, I, I was very moved by what you just said and uh, uh, touched by his interest in music, the, the gentleman uh, who we lost recently. Yeah, me too. And I think if we've, we've probably all have somebody in the family or maybe it's us who likes to take liberty with lyrics. <laughs> I really enjoyed that part of, of reading that obituary. Um, also want to acknowledge you're winning one of the late night COVID calls awards. Uh, and, and with that, I want to uh, actually just start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and, and how the pandemic is looking there. I am in London and we have just gone as a country back into lockdown. So it's different than it was before. It's not as scary or intense. Uh, but it is a, uh, a, as they say here, a proper lockdown, and it's affecting us uh, dramatically. The, the rates uh, have gone up quite a bit, the second wave. How are people feeling about that? I know, you know, the political situation there early on was not dissimilar from the United States. There was a lot of sort of push back and push around just around who to believe. Has that calmed at this point? People are following public health guidance? Yes. I would say the old adage about keeping calm and carrying on really is accurate. For the most part, people follow what the government says uh, to the letter and are very respectful. The second lockdown is it's just easier because people are, you know, they've been there. They, they, they're, they're ready. They've gone down that road. I would say, though, that they're starting to second guess just the haphazardness of uh, the government's decisions, like a little bit like throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. And 
in a way, protecting some industries and others not. And there's definitely a lot of grumbling about that and a lack of respect for the way the government has rode through it, especially in the last month. But that doesn't mean that they rebel against it or have mass rallies against it. It just means there's a lot of grumbling and it's affecting the popularity of the current administration. You've been following this in a, with a transatlantic vantage point. You're from the United States originally? Indeed. I grew up in Chicago and okay. have lived on both coasts as well since then. So, yeah, my yeah, my heart's in both places. That's two great music towns, Chicago and London. I know you have a diverse and really interesting work background. I, I'd like to focus a little bit on how you got into the music side of it. The interesting thing, at least for me, is I didn't have a clue about the music industry. I have no talent. I love to listen, though. And I was literally in one of my more corporate jobs on an off night at a bar. And I was sitting at the bar with two friends and a band was playing. And we looked at each other halfway into the set and said, this is all wrong. The a band is playing and half the people are talking mm. and all the phones are out and the bar is open and you can hear the clanging of the beer bottles. And so we kind of said, we're fans. Something's wrong here. Let's see if we can change this. And that was the beginning of this business that I launched with those two other uh, guys. And that's how I got into music, sort of because I was upset and complaining about something. And we created something different where it was all about respect and focusing and being quiet. What were some of the trends in live music performance at that time? I mean, you had that insight and that's a very relatable experience, particularly if you, if, if you're, and it's true also like for, for live meet from comedy, if you're into comedy or other kinds of artistic performance where maybe the artist might not be as well known, but you're there to hear it or see it. And, Others are not super frustrating, so I can relate to that. But you had that insight at a time when there seemed to be new options available too. Yeah, I think there was two things that really helped. First is we didn't have music industry experience, so we could break a lot of rules, and we did. So like there was a rule, announce who's playing. We said, no, just show up and we'll surprise you. Why did we do that? Because we realized if people are coming, they'll be in more of a discovery mode. And they won't come for the first band and leave for the second because they're a fan of the first band. And then we said, we're not going to tell you where it is either uh, until like the morning of. Why? Well, because we only had a certain amount of space. I didn't say that the gigs have been in living rooms. So there's not a lot of space. We can only fit so much. It's private. We've expanded beyond that, but it still is not normal venues. So those would be two examples where we were kind of going the other way. Also, to your question about where things were going, there was a lot of obsession around discovery. Spotify was taking off, mm -hmm. SoundCloud, other platforms at the time, Shazam, Pandora. And so there's this sense of, I love to find out, and I can, because the internet allows me to. But what wasn't happening is a combination of discovery and intimacy. Meaning you're with less than 100 people, mm -hmm. and you feel like there's a happening there. It's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about this insight of uh, not giving away who the performers were going to be, because I find that tension 
with the way even that I use online music services right now, I'd like to think I would use it as a discovery vehicle, but honestly, a lot of times I, I use it as a personal jukebox and it just takes me further into the rabbit hole of the bands I already decided 30 years ago I love. But it's interesting you say that because the vast majority of humans, when they turn 30, stick to that music for the rest of their life. And it's, so it's no surprise that many of the people who came were under 30 or folks over 30 with an open mind. What we did is we made sure the sets were short, 20, 25 minutes max. So if you're hearing somebody new and you don't like it, you know there's something else. We had three in the early days, four or five acts. So we, we gave you some sort of smorgasbord. And maybe most importantly, you met other people. So it wasn't just about coming for the band. We also didn't tell you who was going to be there. We limited how many people you could bring. You sat down on a floor. You brought your own alcohol or whatever. And you met people. Mm. And 10 years later, we had more than 20 people getting married to the people, the stranger that they met sitting next to them. And it became a great date night, a kind of cool, well, that's what people tell me, social thing. So that made the whole experience more than just discovery. What a really interesting insight. So, so then you said it scaled up to where you were not only doing it in homes, but in venues as well. There were only so many people who would host a bunch of strangers. Yeah, fair enough. With a couple bands in their house. And there was a lot of demand. So we do it in non-traditional venues. It could be a church basement. It could be a, a, a funky library on another side of town. Uh, we've had them on boats. We had one on a ski jump. Uh, so you never know, but it's always something a bit different because it takes you out of your comfort um, zone. And you behave in a different way, which for us means focusing on the music, not on everything I described earlier. So how did you find artists in, in this context? Because music business being what it is now, my understanding, a lot of, I guess, established artists have to make their money with live performance. And that's a big problem this year, which we'll talk about. Um, so can you say a little bit more about this from the sort of artist perspective, the performer's perspective? At the beginning, we... Mm -hmm. We begged. So people were like, why would I go play in the living room? I don't quite get this. And we explained it's because you're going to have a respectful audience of people who don't know you. So you might walk away with 75 new fans. And so what started to happen was we were obsessive at the beginning about who played, that there was a good act, a good set of three acts, so that if they came, and I'll get to the experience for them in a second, but if they came and you came and friends, you would be ideally blown away because you would expect it was going to be mediocre. But then we would get acts who were really, really good. And so you would want to come back, uh, bottom line, for the fan. And then for the band, as soon as we got them to start coming, they never played events where it was quiet. Never. Uh, except, you know, maybe when they became famous and everyone was singing along with them. So... In the early days, and even now still, it's still super rare where there's that respect and where you can't hear a pin drop. And so that became a super special thing. Then they realized that these were all new fans. They didn't have to do any work, meaning you're, off, you're asked to go play a venue, and many times you have to bring your fans with you. You have to do marketing to, to get uh, people to show up or else you're not paid or you get a cut 
Whereas we said, you don't do anything but come and play your beautiful music. That's it. So it became an easier thing for them. Then for the first five years, it was purely past the hat. So we would give them the money. We might use it for a few other things like uh, making a video or pizza, mm -hmm. but we would give them money as well where they didn't expect anything necessarily. It was donation led. Now that changed later on, but for five years, it was purely past the hat. Just to remind everybody listening to COVID calls, I'm talking to Rafe Offer about the experience of musicians and music um, in this pandemic. So let's make that that turn. So um, thanks for that background. And so now we enter 2020 and suddenly, uh, I don't know when it dawned on you, it took me a little bit longer maybe, but you start to realize like, um, not only is this gonna affect my shopping and work and everything else, but we're not going out to hear live music. Devastating. And I don't think it dawned on us until we were looking at this thing that wasn't going to go away really quickly. And it was only months later where you start to realize how one thing leads to the next, leads to the next. So many of these artists, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, come from a place where most of their money is from playing live gigs. Not necessarily a good living, but it's something. And so that overnight wiped away. And then even acts that we've all heard of, you know, their livelihood changed. So for the artists, the thing that they could rely on most was gone, is gone. And then the government doesn't necessarily have their back. Furlough pro programs and other uh, support does not necessarily go to that freelance person who doesn't make a consistent living. And that's anyone in the arts and, and other industries, I'm sure as well. So there wasn't a backstop. So then they looked, we'll get to that, but then they looked online and we'll get into how that's become a thing, but absolutely devastating. And then the other effect is on the local venues. You're in Philadelphia, there are gonna be cherished venues that are on the border of going out of business. And so how, can they then also be saved? How can they get through these hard times? And then what about all the people who are doing sound or lighting or, 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 and, 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 stage design, if it's the theater? I think we're only coming to grips with that. And even when people say we're going to get back and everyone's going to rush back to live music, well, do the same fans have enough money? Because they might have lost their jobs as well. So it's pretty devastating to use that word. So just to, to sort of stay with this, so how quickly were you able to transition what you were doing with so far into something that could accommodate this new reality that we find ourselves in? So being a small company, we were able to transition within a few weeks. And what we did was we went all online. We started doing live streams similar to you, one a day. And immediately we realized all the money, all of it must go to the artist. And we couldn't charge because there were so many live streams. Where are we going to get, you know, a dollar, two dollars, if that, and we'd lose a lot of audience. So what we said is it's free, but donate. And 100% of the donation goes to the musician playing. And then when that started to work, we started finding a way to pay the musician and get the donation. And so they would get on average hundreds of dollars, sometimes over a thousand dollars. 
uh, sometimes way more than that, for 25 minutes. So the good news is we have that way raised north of $50,000 directly going to the artist. Bad news is we were doing nearly 1,000 events a month before we were retired for a while, and this is one. Uh, there are other so far units, you know, we're, we're, our cities, we're around the world who are doing things on their own, but formally we're doing one a night. So that was number one. Number two, we offered free webinars. We've done nearly 20 and they are about an hour or so. They're things like activism in the art, how artists can impact their community in their downtime, advanced songwriting techniques, building the right team around your music, touring, and so forth. So that was a way for us to say, look, you don't have as much to do right now. That's terrible. But why don't we help you learn during this during this down period? So those two things, I think we were able to do right away just to get get going. Could you give me some examples of the ways that um, artists have have coped, ones you've been interacting with through this time? I have wanted to, um, I'm, first of all, I'm really super glad I found Listening Room. Um, and, um, you know, some of the artists that I would make an attempt to see once a year, let's say, like John Gorka is a singer-songwriter in the United mm -hmm. States who I love. And, you know, he's been trying. And, you know, some of the venues that he might ordinarily play, you can see, like, the venue will host something. Like, they're trying to approximate as best they can an experience. Um, but he's an established artist, and he'll probably come come through this, okay. Um, but I, I've worried a lot about emerging artists, just as I said before, about comedians and, and playwrights and anybody else who's breaking into the arts. It's a critical moment when you're building that audience. Tell us a little bit about how some of the artists you worked with during this time are, are, are making out. Because they're in that discovery mode, they tend to be quite young. Not all of them, but many of them. So what does that mean? That means that they not always, but sometimes have a support network of their families. So there are various ways they, they respond. If they're quite young, so for example, Elizabeth Wilde, who is a lovely singer-songwriter who is in Brooklyn, she went home. So she lives, I don't know exactly, but I'm thinking North Carolina. She'll kill me if she hears this, but it's somewhere nice, and she went home. So she was living with her parents, and there are many, many who they never thought they would ever go home again, right? But that was the only choice. Um, for her, then, she actually was able to write some beautiful new songs. So that's, I would say that's more on the lucky side. Then you have an artist who might be a bit older, who was making their money, making enough money, but they are married, and they have a kid. And what do they do? So that's, not, that's a, a heavier lift to go home. So they'll break into several areas. One might be they have to get a job, but the job might have nothing to do with music. Yeah, maybe they might be teaching guitar online, but generally they have to get a different job. So I was speaking to a friend in Buenos Aires, Roberta Megley, who does great music around accordion and tango, and she's had to teach English, uh, you know, and so she's done nothing with her music and she feels she's atrophying. So that'd be an example where she lives with someone and they needed money. If you have a partner who's making enough money, maybe in a career that's not as devastated 
and you're older, well, then perhaps you can go and do some things like my friend Chris Winfield, who's in the north of Norway, who lives on a farm. It's not expensive. His wife works part time. He's written two albums. So that'd be an example on the positive side. Uh, I have a number of friends in Portland who they've got no backstop. They might have a small kid. They're stressed. So they're not able to be as creative as Chris. Another guy, Josh, who's in Berlin. Berlin is an inexpensive city. So he's able to have a little bit of revenue coming in from his music already, not the live, but the stuff already recorded. And even though and then Berlin's a little better right now, COVID wise, but now they've just gone back into lockdown. But still, because it's an inexpensive place to live, he has some things going. So I'm giving you a world tour because so far is a global organization, but you'll see there's no easy answer. And some of it is about age, about family situation, and some of it is about mental health. So like, do they have the wherewithal to go out and write new songs? Can they use this pain in a way that it turns into, translates into amazing music, or is the pain too intense for them to create? It, what you're describing too is, it strikes me as a, really remarkable way for people to get an insight into the pandemic, the global aspect of a pandemic. I mean, disasters are usually pretty localized and I mean, they may affect whole countries, but they don't generally affect the whole world unless we're talking about climate change or a war. And so what you just gave, like you said, a sort of world tour um, of these artists and in listening room, are you seeing that with audiences too? Are the audiences clustered? I don't know quite how your audience breaks out. Are they mostly in North America and Europe, or is this? Are they really tuning in from everywhere? They're tuning in from everywhere. That's so, cool. yeah, that's definitely a positive about the listening room that these artists can be exposed to people who would never discover them in a room in Philadelphia, and that's super exciting. We've had that before when you do a video and pop it on YouTube or wherever, but not with a live performance. So I would say you're absolutely right. That is a silver lining. You can also, as we've done, do virtual private shows where you might have somebody's, let's say it's their uh, birthday party or an important event. Then you can have three acts literally from around the world on Zoom. So, and you can be more interactive. Uh, you can actually interact with all of the audience because you're talking like we are. Mm -hmm. so there are some advantages that may be in, enriching to the artist's career. They don't replace the real thing, but there's some positives. Just to follow up a little bit, too, on the kind of themes that you're seeing emerging. I mean, it's it's um, this is a year of many disasters converging all at once. Uh, certainly with the pandemic, but also with Black Lives Matter in the United States um, and the economic crisis, which is is worldwide. Are you seeing that in the in the the themes of the? I mean, you kind of it's an interesting way to talk about having your you know finger on the pulse of kind of emerging trends in music right now, and not waiting for the recordings to come out through the big you know whatever the labels tell us that this time means that you're getting a chance to hear what this time means to artists who are literally making it in the moment yeah you know it's nice to think about the glass being half empty when it's 
uh, half full as well. And that certainly is enriching this global look in one goal. Uh, we're all in this together, as you implied. We know that artists from one country can easily, because of technology, talk to somebody else, but they're in exactly the same circumstance. And we're also seeing, and this is super interesting, collaborations happening more fluidly. So an obvious example would be a band that separated because of COVID. I have a friend, Josh Whitehouse, who's from London, but is in LA. And one of his bandmates is in Australia, New Zealand. And then another's back in London. And so they can do concerts and create things from those two places that are so far away. That wouldn't have happened before. And COVID, as terrible as it is, accelerated that. I wouldn't have thought about that. And of course, I guess up until the summer, certainly in most places in the world, people were being strict about lockdown. They were not getting together. And so you are literally seeing, I hadn't thought about that effect of, of artists sort of being able to, to discover a way to continue to work, even if they couldn't be together. What about artists who might not, who would be younger? I'm wondering about that too. You know, um, is there an age limit? Is this, you know, usually for playing in clubs, it's 18 and up in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this seems to open up a possibility for younger artists as well. Yeah, it's so true. So we've never had an age limit so far sounds. It's really been the limit around talent. And so we've had quite young performers. In fact, fun fact, we believe Billie Eilish, uh, her first ever concert was at SoFar and she was 14. No kidding. So, yeah, crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, no one knew her really. And she played beautifully and she's done really well. So that was about talent. It wasn't about, oh, she's 14. We can have younger ages. And obviously, TikTok has been huge for those under 20. And I think, again, both with what we're doing, but, but anybody on the planet who wants to have a non-bar-related real life or, as you imply, virtual event, it is much more open to, to anyone of any age. And, then, you know, the world is obsessed a bit with, youth in terms of music uh, it is like oh that person is only 18 uh, so it does play into a theme that's already happening before that people are keen or crave the next big thing who happens to be probably somebody quite young and now they have even more options A reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Rafe Offer about music in this time of the pandemic, and um, he's a co-founder of So Far Sounds, and we're talking about Listening Room, which is an online performance and listening venue that has been adapted to deal with COVID-19. So, uh, Rafe, we're, I don't know where we are in the pandemic. Um, I'd like to think we're at least halfway in the United States, but I'm not even so sure about that. But there will come a time in the next year or two in which there'll be a chance to go back out and go to live 
live venues in other parts of the world. I think that is probably already starting with social distance and outdoors. Um, what do you see? I mean, you're a person who knows the entertainment industry really well. Um, are we going back to music? I mean, is, are you going to look back at listening room was a sort of a moment of adaptation or is this um, a kind of a trend that's going to, this hybridity is really where we're going to live from now on, do you think? It's a great question. No one has the answer, but we can predict. I think hybrid is exactly the right word. I think virtual concerts are here to stay. I think what you're going to find is the fusing of the two. So, for example, if there's a gig at Madison Square Garden and it's sold out or too expensive, you may be able at a fraction of a price to easily watch it online. Let's say the paywall is $5 for a gig that add a zero to that or two, two zeros in some cases. And, and so the online experience is now pretty good. And then there'll be other options where the artists and their promoters can make money and the fan can get involved, such as a green room that is virtual. So we mentioned Billie Eilish before, when I saw her as she was getting bigger here uh, in London at one of her gigs for about a thousand people. Yeah, I, I got to go backstage, kind of fun and talk to her, but you can do that then with many more fans virtually and you can charge for that. Uh, so maybe there's a certain limit to those who can see their favorite artists who they're not seeing in real life, but it's the same concert. Then we move to merchandise, which has always been huge in real life, but why couldn't one create something just special for that night that is online? Maybe, Scott, you need to do COVID calls merchandise. So You'll have to talk me through how to think <laughs> about that. Yeah. But there's the, so you can buy a T-shirt of your favorite band or whatever, and that can be online. So all of a sudden, you're opening up the amount of fans dramatically, not to mention globally. Or let's say, you know, you're just afraid to be out or don't feel like getting out, but you know you can watch it online. But it becomes, as you said, hybrid or or even you know connected more intimately together. Let me ask you just to follow up on that uh, a question. I'm a I'm a person from the 20th century, and uh, so that means you know I can say like a lot of my people, my peer group, like you know I saw Jane's Addiction live at the first Lollapalooza in 1991. I'll never forget that show. Perry Farrell came out on huge stilts. It, it was an it, it was quite a it was quite a show and part of that experience was not only the the act and the loudness of it there was the the reaction of the crowd around there were those many different aspects of it that sort of transcended the music and i guess what i'm asking is a sort of a a lame version of the question is can online ever really give people that same full sort of sonic experience of connecting with music in ways that go um, beyond what we can do online. I'm with you. I don't think so. I don't think it's the same. I do think that some people will argue that in a year or two, when AI is more further developed, mm. you could have a headset. And I don't know if you ever put one on and gone on a roller coaster. You better mm. feel like the real thing. Really? Yes. Okay. So Perry Farrell is going to be on the stilts coming at me in the bingo 
Now, whether that memory would be the same as actually being there, you know, feeling the sweat of your neighbors, which hopefully we can do post-vaccine or whatever, again, it, that's to be seen, but I think AI. So let's put that aside. There are things that you can do that are not happening in the gig that you went to, such as you and I talking or some fan talking to their artists or, or seeing a chat function and the artists in real time throughout a virtual gig talking to them. Right. So my friend Kyan, a, a musician from Cambridge, said, you know, for the first time, I can literally talk to all 100 people watching, whereas that won't happen when he's up on a dark stage. So short answer, I don't think you can ever replace that feeling in real life. Long answer, there are some things that might do an end round and might be a bit different, compelling in a different way. That's, yeah, thank you for that. That's so interesting. Um, we're almost up on time. There was just one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and I hope it's okay. I saw it mentioned in an interview that you did uh, that you're part of an organization also called Facing History in Ourselves. Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, it originated in Boston and is now over here. Facing History is basically trying to eventually reduce or eliminate racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, and hate. It does it by educating teachers to talk about history and to use the lessons of history, not just to put someone to sleep because they're not interested, but actually to say, what did we learn in this historical moment that we can apply to your life today and get teenagers to think more about a term that facing history calls upstanders. So it's not okay if someone talks about somebody in an inappropriate way in the schoolyard. It's not okay about what's happening with climate change, et cetera. And that sense of training someone to be an activist in a proper way as an upstander is what Facing History is all about. And yes, I'm a chair of the advisory board here in the UK, very passionate about Facing History. Thanks for asking. And that organization was underway before this extraordinary ranching year. Correct. It's been around for decades. Uh, as I said, a Boston-based originally organization that that spread uh, because you know racism has been around a long time, may always be around, but how can we help curtail it through the use of better, more current education? I'm just going to put that up on the screen here so people can find that. That's facing history. Dot org and then to check out what we were talking about earlier go to sofarsounds.com slash v slash listening room or you can just find it through any kind of normal normal searches um rafe offer thank you so much for your time today on COVID calls you're doing so many interesting things and um you know a lot of the discussions particularly leading up to the election here um have been grim and uh, we should be talking about art in these times, too. It's one of the shortest ways to bridge people who might be divisive, might not agree. You can agree upon a piece of art and say, isn't that Picasso, that Leonard Cohen song, you know, fill in the blank, beautiful. And then you can say, oh, by the way, we might have different views about our politics. But all of a sudden you found some commonality before you're hiding behind anonymity in a divisive other situation. 
Crosby, Stills, and Nash have kept my stepfather and I talking over decades. I don't think we agree on a single thing politically, but we agree that the song Wooden Ships is probably the best song ever written. So, But I think I'll have to turn him on to Listening Room because I think he'll really like it. I, I do. Rafe Offer, thanks so much for your time today. Stay healthy, and I hope we'll, we'll stay in touch. My pleasure. I hope to see you in a real living room over some music one day. Same. See ya. Bye-bye. That was a great discussion. I'm going to turn to my second guest today, uh, Esther Chernak. And everybody knows Esther Chernak if you've been following COVID calls. But let me just introduce her again briefly. Esther's professor in the Department of Environmental Health in the Drexel University School of Public Health. And she has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. And prior to joining Drexel in 2010, Dr. Chernak worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. Esther, good to see you. Happy to be here tonight. So um, I didn't bother you on election day. It wouldn't have mattered even if I had because there was no immediate results. Um, but I, I was so eager to talk to you after the election was over just about what you thought's going to happen in this interregnum period. And before I could even formulate a question, uh, President-elect Biden has put forward this um, COVID-19 task force. So I, I want to start with that. We have a few things to discuss, but let me just start with that. Were you surprised that it came together so quickly? And do you know the names of these people who are on the task force? I know a number of those names, sure. Um, I'm delighted that he didn't waste any time pulling it together. And even with his acceptance speech over the weekend, you know, he focused quickly on how his first agenda item is going to be to address this pandemic. So, and everything will come from that. And so it's a relief. Honestly, it's a relief. We still have a huge amount of work to do to get this behind us, um, but at least it's a step in the right direction. And he's pulled together a cast of, you know, of stars. Um, these are really uh, the, some of the smartest people working in this country in the field of public health and infectious disease control. Um, so it's a great group. It's, it's refreshing to see science uh, inform um, public policy with respect to this pandemic. It's gonna. It's not gonna turn around on a dime. But at least he's starting to think about it, and it's it's confidence inspiring. And I think hopefully, as president elect, he can use that position at least as a bully pulpit. You know, he's not gonna be able to invoke the Defense Production Act as president elect, but he can talk about masking and modeling protective behaviors and hopefully ways that will make a difference in terms of some of the critical non-pharmaceutical control measures that we need. Have you ever seen anything like what we're going to see over the next two months where you have a, a sort of external political force that's going to be pushing a public health message while you have a formal political force that's pushing a secondary message? I've been racking my brain all day to see if I could think of a, a model for this. I can't. I can't either. What I'm wondering is the degree to which the legacy lame duck administration is going to be interested in this pandemic. They haven't been interested in the last year, um, but maybe there will be less energy in terms of undermining CDC and FDA uh, when they realize they've only got 60 days left um, and they'll focus on whatever they're going to focus on for the remaining time frame. Um, I mean, there's been almost an active undermining of public health and science. And what I'm hopeful is that 
they'll just, you know, allow the new administration to come in and start to do things, um, uh, you know, at least at least from the perspective of messaging um, and leave CDC alone. Maybe if they'll just leave CDC alone, there's enough career scientists, at, you know, at NIH and FDA and CDC that, you know, can do the right thing if we allow them to. So my only hope is that maybe that will happen in the next 60 days. But I, this is a crazy kind of transition. I, I can't recall an election where there was jubilation in the streets. Maybe after, you know, Barack Obama's first election, there was, there was joy in the streets. But I, this was pretty remarkable what happened this weekend, I thought. Uh, it, it was. And as you said, it's, it is pretty rare to have people go into the streets, not also sort of clearly happy that their candidate had won, but also that the other candidate had lost. Um, and, you know, back to this, this issue around the Trump effect and CDC, I do wonder if now that the political viability of being anti-mask, for example, is removed from the equation, I, I this struck me over the weekend, I just thought, what a, what a completely crazy upside down situation we've been in where just if Trump and March had just decided because of whatever he ate for breakfast that morning, oh, a mask is a good thing. Or if he decided that there was no political capital to be made out of it. I mean, one can't begin to think how many lives might have been saved from that, but there's no political calculus anymore. Nothing to be gained. It seems to me that that's the case. Maybe because of that, they'll just back off and, and let some of these um, really fine public health agencies do their job. Um, and we'll have to see what happens. Um, you know, I think there's a lot happening with the vac on the vaccine front, and that will unfold in the next 30 to 60 days. I'm sure the lame duck administration will try to, try to take credit for that, and they should. I mean, the one thing that I think this administration has done right is this Operation Warp Speed. They have really accelerated uh, the development of a number of candidate vaccines. And that's and that part of it is great and promising, but uh, there's so much more to controlling this than just get, and unrolling those vaccines. Well, I wanna, let's, talk, let's turn to the vaccine. I, I'm glad you, you raised it. And the timing of that announcement, I don't know if we'll ever know. I'm glad that the announcement came after the election was over. I'm sure they weren't slowing the work down at all. But what, what should we make of this announcement? Pfizer says that they have a vaccine that they believe will be effective uh, for 90% of the population. That seems a well, lot more robust than what I've heard. And when I hear things like that, I realize I don't really know how to even interpret what I'm hearing. So that's why I'm glad I want to talk to you about it. So it's, it's one study. <laughs> it's, the, yeah. you know, it's the first study that really get with efficacy data. Um, and in this particular study that there was a 90% efficacy in terms of preventing symptomatic infection, I think. Um, so it wasn't preventing the disease per se, uh, but preventing symptomatic infection is what I understood. Um, and it is much, that's, a, that's an efficacy that is much higher than I think anybody thought we would see. It required two doses, each given over a three-week period. Uh, it's interesting. It was the, it's an, one of the mRNA vaccines, messenger RNA vaccines. So really cutting edge technology that we've never really used before with respect to vaccines. Um, and, and the good thing about that technology is that I think it's, I'm told that it's, 
it's easier to produce vaccines with, you know, with, with just M messenger RNA candidates because you're not, you know, creating subunits and you're not growing viruses, et cetera. On the other hand, it has really significant cold chain requirements that will make distribution on a large scale challenging. Um, but the bottom line is we have the first vaccine that, you know, elicits neutralizing antibodies to the spike protein. There's a number of different vaccines that are in the pipeline that have similar uh, targets. Um, so uh, this is promising not just for this vaccine that was just, you know, in the news today, but for uh, related vaccine candidates that are also in the pipeline. And the, the fact that, you know, at least in this particular study, you know, had a 90% efficacy in this, you know, in the, in the vaccine recipient arm, that's, that's great news. And it's, uh, you know, it's great news for vaccines in general. It's great news for this particular vaccine. Um, in terms of the timing of the announcement, you know, I'm naive, I suppose, but I don't think it was deliberately postponed till after the election. I think they made a decision about when they were going to, you know, when the 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 uh, state the the DSMB, the uh, Data Safety Monitoring Board, was scheduled to review the data this last weekend, as I understand it, and they did that, and it turned out to be promising. I don't, I don't think it was political, but maybe that's naive. I don't know. Well, I don't, you know, a lot of things that I wouldn't have thought before this year. I mean, the president seems to think that they, or I don't know if it's him, but others around him have already said they thought that Pfizer was holding out, you know, until after the election to, to hurt him. Ultimately, those things will fade away. They won't be important. What's important here is that, as you said, this this profound breakthrough is is underway. Can I, let me ask you a little bit more about it. Does it mean that, that companies that are following quite different pathways to producing a vaccine? Will they continue on the pathway that they're on? And so we may end up with a menu of different vaccine options within some reasonable period of time? I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I mean, like, like many diseases, there's a menu of vaccines. I mean, look at influenza. There's a menu of vaccines for influenza that we choose from every year. And many of them are on the market. You know, some are high titer, you know, high antigen level, low antigen level, nasal administration, injections, some are subunits, some are, you know, killed vaccines. Um, you know, the key is that they all develop, they all have a common ability to elicit an immune response to influenza antigens, and that will be the case for coronavirus vaccines. Um, you know, what's similar about these vaccines, as I understand, is that many of them will elicit an antibody response, maybe even a cell-mediated immune response, but mainly antibody response to the surface or protein of this virus, but there's lots of ways in which different vaccine technologies are unfolding. Many people are optimistic about even a second generation of vaccines that are in the pipeline now that are not yet in clinical trials. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is there, there, sh there will be a menu and you kind of want there to be a menu. You want there to be different types of vaccines, different processes for manufacturing them because it's going to be a tall order to generate and manufacture enough vaccine, particularly if multiple doses are required for everybody on the planet. And so, the, you know, the more the merrier, if, as long as they're all effective. And just to say a little bit more about that uh, supply chain issue, um, can you just break it down in sort of broad strokes for us? Like what are the, how does that even work? Well, there's, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's, that's a really complicated, process, um, but, you know, manufacturing, you know, 300 million, 300 billion doses of vaccines is obviously a tall order. One of the things that's remarkable, remarkable about Operation Warp Speed and, and just in general in terms of even the WHO's approach to vaccine development is that 
you know, in, in normal times when drug companies create a vaccine, uh, there's years of testing the vaccine. Um, and, and there's really no investment in the manufacturing component or manufacturing processes until after years of testing has gone, have, have, have elapsed. And there's a judgment made about whether it's worth the financial risk of investing in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And the, and the one, the major step that we're skipping that, you know, which skips this delay is that there's been investments now in, in building um, factories and, and investing in the manufacturing side of things so that as soon as there's a vaccine candidate that looks like it's successful, there'll be, in, you know, concomitant investments in, 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 you know, scaling up the manufacturing to, to make large quantities of this. And that's been, that's, I think, been the biggest change in the, in the COVID 19 vaccine development compared to prior vaccines. And, you know, it's more than just the vaccine itself. It's syringes. It's the Mm -hmm. which vaccines are are stored. And again, with these messenger RNA vaccines, I think there's going to be really uh, logistical challenges with respect to just ensuring cold chain. These are vaccines that have to be stored at like minus 80 degrees. So we're talking significant cold chain issues with the mRNA vaccines. uh, just in terms of the stability of that molecule. So, so you know, there's different logistical challenges. And so the different types of vaccines that are will be available might have different logistical solutions or challenges as well. And all of this is going to have to be solved, which is sort of why this is fantastic news, but it's not going to be anything that helps us with this pandemic for the next one or two months. This is, you know, in the next year, we can look to see how these um, become available and can be distributed on a lot larger scale. Yeah, I was lingering here in this positive space for a second while, because it's important yeah yeah me too it's light at the end of the tunnel it's promising and you're listening to your prior guest it's this is maybe what uh, is going to allow us to have normal lives again and go to concerts and theater um you know this notion that we can be in, in you know in restaurants again safely and um you next to other people safely and listen to music and, you know, watch plays, et cetera. I mean, it's a huge part of it, but we still have a while of mask wearing and social distancing ahead of us, I think. And after this pandemic, mask wearing becomes a norm, like many countries in Asia where mask wearing has been a cultural norm for, for years. Well, that was something that uh, uh, President-elect Biden said today a mask is not a political statement so you know they're working with this task force they're sort of working two things simultaneously i think they're now with this vaccine news they will begin the plannings and the logistic uh, to make a dose available for every every american and presumably with international implications as well but they're going to have to work hard on the messaging just to sort of depoliticize. And all health is political in any, under all conditions, but to bring it out of electoral politics and to make a mask something that you just that you just wear. Do you have hope? I mean, you're a person with a, a very sort of deep reservoir of understanding of public health messaging. Can we get back to a place where it's no longer uh, sort of a virtue signal of whether you do or don't wear a mask and you just wear it? It's a good question. Um, I mean, the whole issue around messaging or related to vaccines is, is fraught with, with uh, all kinds of bias and, and maybe is unique. In terms of mask wearing, I mean, it's actually insane what's happened here um, when you think about it. And what I wonder is, 
Um, we are now seeing this virus surge in parts of the country um, where there aren't going to be healthcare assets to really adequately respond to the virus. You know, we're seeing uh, huge numbers of cases in the in northern Midwestern states and rural parts of the country, uh, which have limited access to healthcare assets. You know, these are the, you know many many parts of rural United States is uh, are, you know ha don't have access to the help to hospitals, and we're already seeing hospitals full up, ERs full up, intensive care units full up, and it may be that some of those communities. Um, that had been so oppositional to mask wearing, um, recognize that, you know, uh, this is real and that maybe simple prevention measures um, are worth implementing. I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, you know, the, the wearing of masks has become part of this tribal signaling uh, that's, that's, um, that's really profoundly tragic. Um, uh, and, you know, we could say that today, um, but I say that with an eye towards what's going to happen two, four, six weeks from now, because mm -hmm. turn pandemics on a dime, it's particularly this pandemic, you know, when you start to see, um, like, in, when you think about um, New York State, New York City and Europe in March and April, where we had, you know, dramatic increases in cases and, and really full up hospitals, we started to implement these, you know, draconian lockdowns just mm -hmm. to try to get control. It took four weeks to really start to have, you know, some degree of uh, relief, at least in the context of healthcare. And so we're gonna see that, we're seeing that now. I mean, we're at a point now where we're, seeing, we're at well over 100,000 cases a day for the last week or so, the last several days. We're, you know, that means a million new cases every 10 days. I mean, that's a terrible place to be right now. And, um, you know, it's you know we're going to start to see a lot of pain pain in parts of the country that don't have the health care to absorb this and we're going to see that here as well i mean even in even in places like the northeastern united states that suffered in march and april lockdown did social distancing we're starting to see increases in cases um you know we haven't had the huge relaxation in terms of social distancing that other parts of the country have but we're seeing lots of cases and we'll have to see how long we can sustain even what we're doing now. Um, I think mask wearing is really critical. And uh, I'd like to think that, you know, some of the folks who are so anti-mask wearing will start to recognize that it's a simple thing to do that can make a big difference in their health and the health of people around them. Yeah, it's, again, I, I'm struggling for historical analogy. Of course, I'm always trying to find some, some history, you know, ledge to grab onto to help me out and understand. And we are, we've been in terra incognita so much this year. I mean, even back to this vaccination issue, because there were a lot of people with progressive politics who ordinarily would be not folks you would consider anti-vax vaccination. And in the last couple of months, they've been using anti-vaccination kind of language saying things like, well, if a vaccine comes to market under a Trump administration, I won't trust it. I've heard a lot of people say that. And so maybe this again takes some of the air out of that balloon too. I mean, I think the hyper-politicization of this has been mostly on the right, but not only, it's affected everyone across the political spectrum. Yeah, I agree with you. I heard those same messages and, and I honestly thought that was the wrong thing to say, the wrong way to convey it. There's a lot of things that I think the left said in the last few months that I think were 
the wrong messages. Um, but in particular, I mean, I think the message should have been, I'll take a vaccine when the science supports it. <laughs> um, and, and, and not connect it to whatever administration that happens under. Um, yeah, I mean, because I, I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I think it was easy to hear that and think, oh, ooh, the, you know, people are against the vaccine now. And, and I think that's not what people meant. Um, that's what you could hear if you were, you know, listening for anti-vaccine, you know, content or, um, yeah, uh, you know, anti-vaccine sentiment. And that's, that's not what I think people meant. Um, but, um, you know, I think, it, I think it was the wrong message. I mean, I think what we all believe, I hope what I sure believe is uh, we'll take a vaccine when the science demonstrates that it's safe and effective, period. <laughs> right, right. It, it, it is interesting because the one of the things that, the, that Biden and Kamala Harris have already started trying to do is to talk a lot about CDC. I haven't heard them talk about FDA yet, but I'm sure we will. And to talk about these agencies in ways that people usually talk about them with enormous respect. And I think sort of bringing that just sort of back into sort of the institutional science culture will make a difference. I, cert I certainly hope it, it does. I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and uh, right now I'm talking with Esther Chernak about the pandemic. Um, you mentioned a minute ago, I just want to come back to it. So in the United States right now, we're up to 126 new thousand new cases. I think today El Paso, Texas is off the charts, but also in the upper Midwest in Wisconsin and the border with Canada and the Midwest. Uh, it's bad news all over. It is. And some of these, some of the governors of these states, I think it was Utah, these Republican governors, they are now issuing mask mandates. Too little, too late. Let's hope not too late. But um, yeah, I mean, we are seeing cases off the charts in many of these states um, that have had, you know, a fair amount of transmission for weeks now. Um, but certainly the, the transmission in those places is contributing to our national numbers, although it's increasing everywhere. Dr. Peter Hotez, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and also a vaccine expert and developing his own vaccine for COVID, um, has been very active on social media. He's based in Texas and been very active on social media decrying what's happening there, uh, talking about you know, the decimation of the, of, um, the, Latin, the Latinx population there, just the, the way the virus is running ramshod, um, particularly among low-income communities of color. And uh, it's just terrible. Um, it's, it's, it's terrible what's happening in Texas. It's terrible what's happening in, in the northern Midwest, in places like Utah. Um, and hospitals are full up. We are beginning to see their altered standards of care, uh, limits on access to intensive care unit and critical care beds. I mean, we've certainly gotten much better at taking, treating this disease. Um, 
But that said, we are still, and we've gotten better, I think, at protecting the highest risk people in nursing homes. But at some point when the disease is spiraling out of control the way it is across the U.S., you're not going to be able to keep it out of high risk settings like nursing homes. And you're going to have so many cases that even the rare events like the 25-year-old who needs a ventilator, that's going to happen more and more because... Mm -hmm. Have millions of cases, you're going to see those. Um, and so, you know, this is these are not benign outcomes by any means. And uh, it's going to be very hard to turn this around. You know, because, you know, as I said before, you know, you don't lock things down, you don't limit social distancing, and immediately have a reduction in, in your hospital demand. Um, it's going to take a long time to reduce transmission in the community where you start to see preservation of the healthcare system. So we're back into some questions that were we, you and I were talking about back in, in March and April. For example, the, the governor of South Dakota, Governor Nome, has said that there will not be a lockdown in South Dakota. I think South Dakota, I believe South Dakota. Um, and other governors have said the same. Doesn't matter what happens, we're not going to lock down. I guess I have two questions. One is, when you reach a certain point, you wonder if that holds the pressure gets to be too great. They're going to have to do what we did here in New York and New Jersey and the Northeast in, in March and April. Put a pin in that. The second thing is, new president comes into office, the options are on the table to take the kinds of public health measures at a national level that Trump never did. That is to say, to exert federal power to force states to lock down. Do you expect we'll see, I guess, what kind of things are you are you thinking might come about in January, December, January? Yeah, so it depends where we are and what happens in the next 60 days, right? Uh, you know, Arizona was an interesting case study because they didn't lock down, but they... They issued masks, you know, the, you know, they, they encouraged the use of masks and they were and they did some social distancing things and they closed down uh, congregate settings like rest and restaurants and that sort of thing. And they were able to not to, to actually get things under control without a huge lockdown. And so I think what you will see what I'm reading about with, the, with you know, where the Biden plan is, is um, I, I think you'll see. Uh, curtailing of things that are non-essential while we have rampant transmission, but you'll see uh, messaging around masks, probably mask mandates or whatever can be done around mandate mask usage. I think you'll see investments in testing capability. Mm -hmm. We're not blind and we'll encourage testing in places where there's really high risk uh, for transmission. And I think you'll see investments in PPE, so healthcare workers, have better protection. You might see utilization of the Defense Production Act right. to invest in those technologies. I mean, even right now, um, you know, people want to ramp up testing to limit transmission. And there's there are some supply chain issues. There's supply chain challenges with reagents, with plastic pipettes, with you know anything with mm -hmm. test swabs. Um, so you'll see investments in those in in those sorts of things. And you'll see, I think, investments in personal protective equipment. While we're seeing things like mask mandates. And I think I think even little things like mask mandates and, and looking critically at, you know, some of the things that we've loosened up over time, um, like, you know, uh, congregate settings. I mean, if you look at what happened, you know, Europe did an amazing job locking down. There was very little recognized transmission in the summer. And then so everything was back to normal. And, you know, you had bars, you had restaurants, things open. We didn't have that, at least in this part of the country. Mm -hmm. 
the slow reopening of restaurants. Um, and I think that's probably where, you know, local and state officials will work with federal officials to say, what can we keep open while we have so much disease in the community? That, you know, there's always this balance. But I think things like mask wearing, um, you know, limiting congregate settings that we're that we're doing now, at least in this part of the country, can make a big difference. And I think there'll be investments in 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 testing. And when you have investments in testing, there will also be concomitant investments in contact identification and tracing of all, you know, again, it's hard to do that when there's um, 100,000 cases a day, but in communities that have fewer cases, you can invest in that, I think, with good effect in terms of disease control. The politics become important here again, too, because the next Congress will have to face the need for some sort of stimulus uh, to try to give people, I mean, the economic pain is real and it's out there. And for some people, it's been eight months now. That can also make it more likely, can't it, that a mask mandate could work and that people could choose to not put their lives at risk if they can pay their rent for the next two, three, four months. Yeah, that's a great point. And part of you know, part of the control measures has to be an economic stimulus. You know, people talk a lot about paying restaurants and bars to stay closed, you know, allowing allowing these businesses um, that, you know, need to be open just to make make money uh, to be closed for a short for a period of time so that, you know, we can do things like social distance um, and wear masks and get this under control. I mean, you know, it's interesting if you look at some countries in Asia. I happen to have a son who's living in Japan. He's been there since March. He works in a restaurant. Mm. He's a chef. He works at a restaurant and he's working. Um, mm. Been working for months now. Um, and if you think, of, you know, Japan was one of the countries back in March and April. That was the, you know, you can't go near to Japan. It was one of the worst countries to yeah. go. They worked, you know, worked aggressively, and they have not done the lockdowns. They've, they've locked a few things down. They shut down schools for a while. But they have, you know, universal mask mandates. They're aggressive with contract tracing when they identify cases. And, you know, they're, they're not back to normal. They still have, you know, borders that are closed to, to um, you know, to other countries. Um, you know, they have limited capacity in some restaurants that's beginning to expand now. But for all intents and purposes, they look a lot more normal or having a lot more, they're a lot more close to having a normal life than we sure are. Mm. So I think, you know, I think that an economic stimulus um, to keep some of these higher risk venues closed um, and people can live, um, live their lives um, will make a big difference in terms of getting this under control. And then then you have wiggle room, right? You have maybe maybe you have vaccine candidates. Maybe, you have you know, these are there are always these controls are going to be layered um, and balanced and multiple things working concurrently. But so much of their success depends on just getting some control around the just percentage of disease in the community. We're so, almost we're almost up on time just to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Esther Schernack. I, I just want to get one last question. And it's one I've asked you a few times, but um, every time I learn from your answer, which is, uh, so now we're eight and a half months in, in the United States. What are your concerns about fatigue in the public health community? Um, I've been thinking about, you know, you remember all these stories back in March and April where there were nurses and doctors who were coming from Arizona and they were coming from Nebraska and they were coming to New York to work and then they returned home. Are we going to see that kind of a exodus from the Northeast to go help people in the Midwest. I, I, I'm trying to get, sort of get a sense of how long we can stand this. 
It's a great question. I don't know the answer. I mean, you know, the time for, you know, healthcare workers from Northeastern states to travel to the Northern Midwest is, is now. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you look at the news, you'll see, you know, nurses and doctors and other healthcare professionals in some of those hospitals in Wisconsin and Utah and North and South Dakota talking now about how exhausted they are. And uh, um, I don't know if we're going to see that. Um, you know, we're starting to see hospitalization creep up here, although not not nearly the way it was back in the spring. But the time for that is probably now. I think, you know, there's real huge capacity issues. It's it's not just PPE. It's it's people and it's beds. It's more than beds. It's you know, it's it's human beings that have to staff those beds. So the time for that is probably now. And it's worrisome when we start to see numbers of cases creep up in other parts of the country that could in fact be supporting the hardest hit. So it's hard to know. And I worry about um, the public health workforce as well. I mean, this is, you know, the, the public health workforce is, we're, is used to doing a lot with a little, it's used to work hard and going from one crisis to another, but this is unparalleled. And, uh, um, you know, I, it, there, it, it's hard to know how long we can sustain this. And, you know, we're going to, if all goes well, we'll move from, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions to, to vaccine distribution, <laughs> which is also going to be a huge amount of work. Um, so I, I don't know how long we can take it. And I worry, I mean, you know, you talk about COVID fatigue on the part of the public and, um, you know, I'm hoping that actually the specter of a vaccine being available within six months, and I don't know if that's the right number, mm -hmm people a sense of, okay, I can do this a little bit longer. You know, it's worrisome right now because it's November and we're heading into colder weather and people are going to be inside, not outside. And those are all things right. that facilitate viral transmission, which is challenging. Plus the ordinary flu season, plus the seasonal effective and the holidays and everything everything else. I mean, it's one thing to be scrappy and you've described public health departments as that, and we all know them to be that way. It's another to ask them to keep on a, a pandemic footing for this long. I hope you're right. Maybe the vaccine somehow offers a, I don't know, some kind of a psychological gestalt. People can begin to see it a little bit differently with some hope. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know. The next few months are, are going to be very tough. I mean, you've heard many people, some of whom were on the COVID, on Biden's COVID task force saying, these are dark days. We are entering yeah. into a very dark period. And I think we are. I wish that were not the case, but I think we are, particularly here in the Northeast. We've got, you know, the sun setting early. These are no. short days, colder weather. Um, these are going to be, the next month or two are going to be tough. Esther Shernack, always great to speak with you, reminding everyone that you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow I'll be talking with Alondra Nelson, the director of the Social Science Research Council. Please do join me for that. And Esther, I hope it won't be too long before I can uh, get you back on COVID calls. And thanks as usual for responding to an invitation on almost no notice. Um, it's great to see you again. Thanks, take care. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, five o'clock.